This is Leaders Lens, the show that reveals what it really takes to become a great leader. I'm Jacob Espinoza, a Fortune 500 leadership consultant and director of creator success at Workweek. Let's go. You know, when I think about servant leadership, I think about really there's a hierarchy of things I have to serve, right? And like the idea of a company is that there's stakeholders around the table inside of an organization and there's the owners, there's the people that work there, and then there's, you know, and then there's the customers. And your job as a manager and as a leader is to understand that hierarchy and that you need to serve the mission of all those people. We are back right here at the Leaders Lens podcast. I'm here with my incredible, I don't even know what to call you, but I, you are somebody I look to as a mentor on Twitter. Like the way you talk about leadership, Michael Girdley, I haven't even said your name yet for the audience. I'm just excited <laughs> for this moment right now. But you just do an awesome job of, of breaking down leadership. And when you're writing about it, it's clear to tell that you're still in the weeds, but you, you've kind of been in the mix for a long time. And I think anytime you're in business, you work with just a lot of different personalities. You work with a lot of different problems. And you've evolved from a CEO to now investing in companies where you're working with CEOs. So I, I'm really excited to have you as a guest on the podcast and to continue to learn the best tips and tricks for leaders and jokes about chilies. Maybe we'll throw some of those in here today. <laughs> uh, you know, last year my costume was a chilies outfit, but yeah, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't manage to do it today. I'm dressed like a normal person. I love it. I love it. For those that don't follow uh, Michael on, on Twitter, he has branded himself as a super fan of chilies. He'll just casually like drop in a, a chilies reference every now and then, and definitely been a bit, bit fun to watch you grow on the platform. But I'm curious to hear about your your perspective on leadership. Let's dive in a little bit deeper. When you think of great leaders, what are some of the, the key characteristics that help them stand out from the rest? I think a lens that I have to think about leadership is it's a learned skill, right? I think that we a lot of times are taught that you're supposed to come out of the womb and magically be like a great leader of other people. But like I've watched my personal journey and man, I kind of hate calling myself a leader because maybe that's something I just do in terms of the way I think about leadership. But like I've watched my personal journey and seen it develop over years from, you know, everything from like the tactics I was able to use in terms of conversing with other people or how I thought about trying to, you know, now do more things where I reach people where they are and try to understand who they are as human beings to try to be, you know, a servant to them in terms of enabling them to be successful you know, I think that's the one thing that I've seen great leaders do is they treat it like a study, right? They're trying to learn the language, to learn the tactics and get good at it over time. Here's your, your thoughts on servant leadership, because I, sometimes I feel like people hear that and then when they put it into practice, they end up just getting trampled on by their team because they feel like they're supposed to like adhere to every request and do whatever their team says. So how do you balance being an effective leader, having boundaries while also having this attitude of I'm here to, to serve my people? I think the danger with servant leadership is I think people get confused by the name. And there's so many things where like we name them something and it's a simple kind of way to to express what the concept is, but people misunderstand it. Like I know we're not going into politics, but like defund the police, like was like the worst branded thing ever. Like, wait, we're not supposed to have any police? Like how's that gonna work? Like yeah. anyway. And I know what they really meant was like, let's invest more in our people. Like they had a when you dug into it and really understood what people were saying, they had a real message to it. But the branding was bad. And servant leadership, I think, has to some extent bad, bad branding because people, when they understand or hear servant leadership, they're like, oh, like, well, you know, I have to do all this stuff for my people and they get to boss me around. And then you can see situations where servant leadership goes so far that you have 
companies where the inmates are running the asylum, right? Not saying the employees are. Yeah, inmates, no, but I get like it. That, that idea. And, you know, when I think about servant leadership, I think about really there's a hierarchy of things I have to serve, right? And like the idea of a company is that there's stakeholders around the table inside of an organization and there's the owners, there's the people that work there, and then there's, you know, and then there's the customers. And your job as a manager and as a leader is to understand that hierarchy and that you need to serve the mission of all those people, right? And most times they're wholly aligned, right? So for example, let's say your company you have to lead your company through a downturn, right? Which a lot of companies are going through right now. And you have to make a leadership decision to save the whole company by reducing force, right? That becomes a real leadership decision there. But if you think about who I served there, right? I served to the best I could everybody, you know, I drew a Venn diagram of them and tried to serve the best of them by sacrificing, unfortunately, a few people's jobs. So the owners could, you know, keep feeding their families from the business, but also so the rest of the employees could keep their jobs. So I think that's where people get servant leadership wrong is they go down this path and kind of don't think deeply about it. It's like, oh, it's a little more complicated. I have to try to make sure everybody around the table gets, you know, gets served as best as possible. How do you help CEOs have this perspective when they're, they're working with their teams and balancing the people versus the logical side and keeping all the stakeholders in mind? Because usually when a decision is made, it impacts lots of different people in, in very different ways. How do you help them have that perspective for people that are, are maybe new and, and still understanding the role? Well, in, in my position, when I sit on boards and I own companies, like my job is to do the best I can to provide clarity. Like, okay, well, here's what we need and, and these stakeholders there. But then the other part of what I really do and other people who are in the hold co space don't do this, and I, I think it's a mistake, is if you're going to be on boards, like your job is to actually be active in terms of helping the leadership and the company be the best it can be. So, you know, everybody wants to do like the Warren Buffett thing. You know, if you're like me and you own multiple companies, it's like oh, I just sit at home and I read all day and I go to McDonald's and like, you know, I, I just write checks when I feel like it. And like in practice, Warren and Charlie, who are the Berkshire Hathaway guys, they did not do that when they first started. They like, they were in there like coaching their CEOs, they're fixing things. Warren, even in his 60s, was like, went and ran Solomon Brothers for like a couple months, like during the SNL crisis and bond crisis. So like the reality is those coaching sessions where, you know, you as a, a owner or a board member are talking to your teammate, right? Who's the CEO or the CEO and working through what their issues are, right? And hearing what they think about them and those challenges. And then really those leadership growth opportunities come through those coaching sessions where you're probing how they're thinking about stuff, you're understanding their perspective, and then you're offering potentially ways that they could think about it differently. And you'll see those opportunities come through all the time, right? So for example, you have a company where the CEO has a high churn rate. Like employees are leaving all the time. Well, like, let's dig into what's going. Why do you think they're leaving? Like, have you done exit interviews with these people? And like, you start to get them to think about it the right way in that situation. So, you know, those are the two things I do. One, set clear, crisp goals for the company of what you expect as a board member. And then hopefully that sets a good example for the CEO to do the same. And then number two, like those coaching sessions are where it all comes out, you know, and the rubber hits the road there. I love it. When you stepped out of your CEO role into investing in companies, did you have this perspective or did it take you a while to understand that you're going to need to be pretty actively involved? I had to learn over time what actively involved meant, sure. right? And like the transition that everybody going from CEO, owner of a company to like board member and somebody else is the CEO is like, you have to unlearn your mindset that you had as the CEO. You also have to unlearn like a lot of habits, 
So for example, when I was the CEO and a crisis comes up, I put it all on my shoulders, I dig in and I go solve that problem. When I'm the board member, if I start doing the CEO's job, which that's the CEO's job is to do what I just talked about, go dig into a, a crisis. If I start doing the CEO's job, that's terrible, right? Like that person needs to do their job. So my reaction has to be the opposite. Like, oh, that's terrible. Like, do you need anything from me? Mm. <laughs> or what are you going to do about it? That has yeah. to be my reaction. So you have to unlearn all of these habits and, and those habits tie into also your mindset, right? Where like I have to have perspective very long-term for companies. I need to be thinking five, 10 years out and like, trying to see things that folks are missing and all that kind of stuff, but also trust that we have the right people in the seats. So it took me years to unlearn all that. That's why I actually like all the stuff I had to learn, I put like in my course. <laughs> and so it's like 400 pages of like things you need to learn and think about differently. But yeah, it was just trial and error and like CEOs getting mad at me. I tried for a while, like, okay, well, I'll be board chair. I'll co still come to your leadership meetings. And like, I discovered I would ruin the meetings. Like if I show up to a meeting as the board chair and owner of the company, like I ruin the meeting because suddenly we have two CEOs in the room. Yeah. So like I had to unlearn and change all those things to, to make it happen. But it wasn't like I woke up one day and I was like, oh, I haven't figured out because <laughs> it took a while. For sure. That's awesome. Everything's a process. When you think of incredible leaders, who comes to mind for you? And maybe some people you've had personal experience working with, but then maybe others that you've read and learned about, but who are the uh, archetypes of, of incredible leaders in your opinion? Let me tell you my favorite leadership story. It was very formative for me. And I was in college and I was getting a computer science degree and every other teacher, except for one, you would go ask this person a question and they would say, oh, here's the answer. And I had one professor. And he was my favorite, absolute best professor. And uh, he's a computer science professor. And we go up and we'd ask him a question about, oh, how do we do this with a computer? What's the answer to this? And he would say, I don't know. Have you looked it up in the manual? Or I don't know. Have you gone to Google it? Or I don't know. Have you gone to go do these things? And like, to me, like, that was just a small thing, but it was like amazing in terms of how he set about empowering us, right? And he led us to not depend on somebody else for the answer, but develop a level of self-empowerment with all this stuff. And like that has transitioned into everything that I do today. Like when I went to get my first job, like I said, okay, like I'm not going to go ask my boss for any help unless I spend 10 minutes trying to figure it out myself first. Like I want to be the best employee this boss has. And uh, all those kind of things. And then I started to do with my employees too, where I like coach them to develop a level of self-reliance. And so to me, as I look back on my history, like little things like that, like an examples by somebody doing a leadership move like that in a situation maybe where they're not even formerly your boss, like it transformed my whole life, right? You see how it impacted it. So anyway, I'll pause there. And I know you had a second part to your question. So no, I love that. I think of a, a moment for myself. I think of incredible leaders and something I'm still friends with, but it was just the fact that this person took time to step out of their step away and check on me and just they could tell I was having a bad day I was in a place where I was about to quit and like I had been building a career and I was about to just throw the towel in and be done but they just like took a moment to like check in and like ask how they could help me and like that just like I don't know just gave me clarity around the fact that like people do care this sucks what I'm going through right now but it's not forever but but I love the lesson that you taught as far as the power of asking a questions because a question because it's really easy to give somebody the answer. And sometimes that feels like it's best in the moment because as leaders, we're stressed. There's lots going on in the day. We want a quick fix. We might think that's what, what our team needs from us. But the reality, we create problem solvers instead of problem bringers when we challenge them to come up with their own solutions. So awesome, awesome lesson there. 
Um, but how about historical figures or people that are maybe more known in, in pop culture? Are there people that you feel just embody a lot of the qualities? I think everybody has a little bit of a different answer, kind of depending on what they look for in a leader, what they think leadership should look like. Yeah, I mean, I think a good one and to go to sports because everybody likes sports. I'll, I'll tell that one. Like I'm from San Antonio, right? And I think, I think- Wemby you know, town, Wemby town, let's Wemby go. town now. But man, like living in San Antonio, it's like a big, small town. And I've gotten to spend time with like Manu Ginobili, like Dave Robinson. Like I, they're not my friends. Like they're much cooler than me for sure. <laughs> but like I've spent time in a room with them. Like I was at a dinner once where Dave Robinson was like, and like, it was so cool to see how all of those guys had a level of selflessness about the mission being bigger than them, right? And it didn't matter so much who was getting what or whatever accolades. It was like, are we going to win as a team, do the right moves every day and get there? And so to me, like, it's one of the things that makes me so proud about San Antonio. Like, yeah, we've got problems here as a city, like, but we've got a lot of good stuff going on. And one of them is this idea of just like selflessness and seeing the bigger picture above just your own personal needs. And I just loved watching those guys, you know, during my 30s and into my 40s being themselves. And so there's a great example of that, like of just doing the work and like being serious about, you know, growing and doing better. You know, one time, and I was sick that day, so I missed it, but I heard about what happened. Manu Ginobili came to visit our like co-working space. And like, he's, you know, he might as well be like a God in San Antonio. Cause he's like the greatest Hispanic basketball player ever in a city that's 65% Hispanic, right? Like, like he would get six man more cheers than everybody else put together. And uh, he came into our co-working space and was like doing a tour of all the different stuff. And he brought like this random guy with him. He was just like old gray hair guy. And one of my friends was like, yo, who's the other guy? Who's the old guy? Cause we would see Manu just like asking questions of the guy. And it turned out that Manu, in order to grow, had hired this guy who was a college professor just to hang around with him for like the semester. The guy took sabbatical and just like followed him around and like taught him stuff. And to me, that was just like a cool way of just like understanding, like at that point, Manu never has to work again in his whole life, yeah. can fly private wherever he wants to go, like has made more money than anybody could possibly ever spend, but still saw it as an opportunity to show his kids and his family and his business partners and all these people that he could be somebody who was going to be consistently growing and developing and building himself. So like, I loved that those guys, the Spurs, Manu, all these guys, like they just showed you how to be a great leader, not through what they told you. It was all through their behaviors. And, um, and I think I've taken hopefully a lot of that, you know, heart to heart, to my heart, to where I try to live the talk. I love it. I, the, uh, yeah, leadership development is such an important topic and I feel like it doesn't get talked about enough and it's hard to make time for it in, in an organization where there's so many different expectations. So I want to dive into that, that particular subject a little bit with you. And when you're working with CEOs that have issues at the manager, director level, how are you helping them develop the leadership skills on their team when it comes to onboarding, but also continued development? I think foundational habits that good managers and good leaders have make it easy to do those other things, right? And so for me, the foundation of everything that I do with other folks in terms of helping them be their best selves is the one-on-one -on -one meeting. So I'm like a little baby. That's what I tell people. Little babies love schedules. I love schedules. And like, I put stuff on the schedule and we have our meetings. And like, you know, I have regular one-on-ones with everybody that I work with. And really those are designed as one-on-ones that are supposed to be beneficial and something that the employee 
looks forward to because we're able to work on real issues that matter to them. And really my habit with all of those is I spend a lot of time trying to understand what's on their mind, where things are not going well, and where there's opportunities for us to think differently about those things. And if, for example, if there's a leadership challenge, those moments of coaching in terms of how to become a better leader are things that come up through real live business problems. So we talked about like employee churn, or we talked about like so-and-so is not motivated. Well, like let's dig into what's going on. And is it a failure of the person, the failure of the leadership or a failure of leadership, right? So you, know, you can dig into those. And then truly that's where I think leadership lessons get communicated the best where it's like, okay, well, like let's think about why this isn't working and then really translate that back into a change of behaviors of the leader and coach them through it. And then hopefully remember enough for the next meeting to hold them accountable and see how that's going. So foundation to all of that for me is teaching leadership is best done around practical topics. And the best way to make sure you talk about those practical topics is recurring one-on-ones that you run well as a manager. I love it. Do you have a recommendation on how someone can identify how often they should be be having one-on-ones with their teams? Or it, I think the the thing we tend to do is schedule them a little more frequently than we think we need them, but then it makes it okay to skip them. So I do one-on-ones with like a brand new employee. I'll do like two or three a week, sometimes once per day. If it is a CEO that's of a very stable company and there's a highly functional board and all that kind of stuff, like we may be meeting monthly or every other month. So then in between, there are other options. You could do weekly, bi-weekly, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think what I do is I schedule them a little bit too frequent and then we cancel them as need be. And you can tell if they're too frequent or way too frequent because you show up without much to talk about. And that's the test. And then you just need to do them a little bit less frequently. So I love that. And I love the recommendation too of a, a new employee or maybe just to pr- promote somebody to a new position, like having that daily stand up just to talk about what happened the previous day, what obstacles are you facing? Because people will suffer in silence if you let them and they'll hide, oh, yeah. especially in a new position where you're kind of feeling that imposter syndrome as it is. You want to impress people. So it can be less comfortable to talk about your own flaws or, or concerns that you have because you're so focused on trying to impress the people around you. But I love having that daily stand-in just as a reminder. Like, it's okay, let's talk through this. You're not going to be perfect. This is a new position. You're going to have a lot to learn as part of the process. So that's an awesome takeaway for the group. Well, and it's also that like when you're new into a role, every job has some stuff that's going to suck about it. You just don't know when you're brand new what's going to suck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like you need your boss to help you understand like, well, okay, this is going to suck or like this is something we actually need to do better. One of the best trick. I've ever seen to develop leadership, imbue culture, like share onboarding and make it go faster, especially when you're onboarding a leader is to when that, if you're in an office, have that leader, the new leader come share your office with you for the first month or so Mm. and just sit in your office and do the whole thing. So I would do that when I was a manager all the time. One of my mentors said, well, just like have, you know, because my story was I started to onboard employees and I would do a really shitty job training them. And like, they didn't understand what I was thinking. Like, it just never turned out well. And then I was like, forget this. Here's what I'm going to (laughs) do. I'm just going to spend every second with my new hire for the first month. And the way I'm going to make sure I do that is they're going to sit like right there. And like, I put their desks like right next to where we like crammed in this little office. But it was like terrific. Like we had like a Vulcan mind meld by the end of like those four weeks. (laughs) And like all those leadership things we're talking about, all like the tactics, all how I thought about stuff, what was going on in our personal lives. Like we got to be really close friends by the end of that month. You also learn each other as, you know, it gets a little smelly sometimes in there (laughs) of the window. But but like that was just a huge hack. Like I think if you have the opportunity to do that, that's really important. Today in a remote world, 
Like the thing I've learned more than anything, get on the damn airplane. And that goes two ways. I just got back from Argentina. We have business interest down there. We started a, a nearshoring firm down there and my two partners are there. Like I just flew all the way down there 16 hours each way to spend a week with them. You know, getting on the plane and that FaceTime is something where like we had some magical chats there that were totally worth the price of admission. So that's the second thing you got to do in this remote world. And also, you know, folks come here all the time to beautiful San Antonio, which I enjoy hosting them. When I was at T-Mobile for a while and when John Ledger was there and he would make it a point to fly to every call center once a year. Like that was just something that was on his calendar. He'd yep. make it happen. And like once a year might not seem like it's that often, but like it was a big deal. Like everybody really appreciated seeing the CEO of the company, having a chance to interact with him face to face and ask him questions. Like everybody really appreciated that, that effort and that momentum carried throughout the year. I mean, people look forward to the next visit, but also because of that interaction, he got more out of the entire team, which was just incredible. So I love that. Love that recommendation yeah. also. And I would like intentionally, I would say things like on these trips, like, oh, I'm so grateful my, you know, we got stuff going on in my house. I'm so grateful my wife let me do this. Like, look, it's a sacrifice for me to go take a whole week and spend a bunch of money and go halfway across the world to do something. And I'm, I'm not going to hide that secret. Right? 100%. And, and, a big 50, 80% of what you're doing when you go visit and do this stuff. It's like going to visit customers, just showing you made the effort to get on a plane, go away from your family, go stay in a terrible Holiday Inn Express, eat horrible Waffle House breakfast, and then go to their office, you know, feeling terrible. Like that says more than anything that's going to come out of your mouth. And the same thing goes with building trust with your people and, and leadership in that manner. This quarter, we're focused a lot on conflict resolution and helping leaders understand how to effectively resolve conflict. I'd love to hear from you. What have you learned through your experience that can help in one, preventing conflict from ever starting, but then also once you start seeing it bubble up, how do you do to, what do you do to get ahead of it? Well, an, an interesting thing that doesn't get talked about very much um, was one time I went to a really wise mentor of mine and I was talking about, you know, I was really pissed at so-and-so, you know, like, have a conflict with them. They're not doing their stuff. And uh, he turned to me and he goes, you know, I got something for you to, to learn. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> he goes, the feeling is always mutual. <laughs> so that was one of the things when, you know, when he told me about that, I was like, so it's one of those things where like, if somebody comes to me now, you know, and it's like, oh, I'm pissed at Sam or Jenny or Jeff. And I immediately know Jeff feels the same way about this person. <laughs> I just haven't heard about it yet. Yeah. Like, that's just, this is the way it goes. That's great. That's a great tactic. So, which to me is also one of those things where I'm like, you know, I kind of think somebody has low integrity or whatever. I'm like, I think that person has low integrity. But I'm like, wait a second. That means they think I have low integrity. Anyway, so uh, sorry to get us off topic. No, but, you know, so that's kind of the first lens that I look at it when people come in. And look, I think number two piece of wisdom around it is like conflict is unavoidable in organizations. Like it's going to happen no matter what. What matters is the techniques and skills that you have to develop or to solve those things. And it's the same things you use to develop, get through conflict with your wife or with your kids or anywhere in life, the playground. Those are all kind of the same things. Really try to, when there's conflict at the workspace, you know, really want to understand where everybody's coming from, want to get people calmed down, want to understand what behaviors each one's doing. And then the other thing I've done a lot, which is kind of cheesy, but if like they're both in the room, we will do the thing where, you know, like you've been to marriage therapy or marriage counseling. I should, maybe. Have. I should have gone earlier, recently divorced. I should have done it earlier in my life. 
So one of the things they make you do is you're not allowed to say like, you did this or you did that, or you suck this way. You're supposed to talk about how you feel about stuff. When you do this, it makes me feel this way. When you do this, it makes me feel this way. So I've used that somewhat in the past in terms of conflict resolution when yeah. both parties are in there. It's like, hey, somebody dumps a bunch of work on your plate at 5 p.m. on a Friday night. Tell us how that makes you feel. What does that make you do? And uh, invariably, <laughs> invariably, when people start to empathize with the other person, the conflict goes away, which is what you're trying to do by getting people to explain how their behaviors make somebody else feel. I love it. Yeah, I think the uh, a lot of the first steps are just, let's just make sure nobody gets defensive. Let's do everything that we can to make sure that nobody feels like their back's against the wall so we can actually have a productive conversation. And I think a lot of that starts with what you're talking through, which is not making accusations, like challenging yourself to assume the best intentions, but then also taking that moment to try to understand why people do the things that they do. Like, what is it that makes this person think this is the appropriate response in this situation? Because a lot of times when things don't make sense, we're just missing a critical piece of information. Like there's probably something that happened that would make this all make sense. And when that gets brought to light, we can like identify with this person. We probably see a lot more in common with them as opposed to looking at them, you know, as thing that's getting in our way at some capacity. Yeah, million percent. And look, I think it's also as a boss, if you're involved in those situations and it's reached a point where they're in your office and they haven't figured out how to work it out yet, like like this is an opportunity for you to pay really close attention to what's going on because you may be finding that somebody isn't the right person to have on the bus, right? And like a lot of times these conflicts are a blessing in disguise where you can start to see like, oh, you know what I've noticed? Like Jeff seems to get into a fight with everyone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe Jeff is, maybe there's a pattern here I should pay attention to. And so conflict as a, you know, I think a silver lining where it can really educate you on the dynamics of your team that a lot of times as boss, like nobody tells you. Do you think conflict has changed as we move to more of a work from home and hybrid where people aren't in the office as often? Like is, has the conflict changed and is how you resolve it changed? Or do you think there's, are there a lot of similarities? I don't know. People still make each other mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think so. What do you what do you think? You have a whole podcast about yeah. It, people so. people. I think it's easier to sweep it under the rug. I think that a lot of times people do that anyways because they just don't care enough about the job. They like bring something up. They just want to work for eight hours and go home, so they don't bring up something that's a pain point that would make the office make it a better place for everybody to work. And I think now that it's virtual, it's just a lot easier to do that. Which is, I think, the challenge for leaders. It makes it even more important to have those consistent one on ones where you have this safe space where people feel like they can be vulnerable and bring up things that are happening and not be scared of retaliation or being criticized for it, but just have somebody that will actually listen and understand and work with them in, in problem solving or, or try to find the, the type of support that they need. That's my perspective on it. I 100% agree with that. And I think a lot of it ties back to everybody wants to think about what they should say for leadership. Like, what do I say to do great leadership? And in the in essence, like, I think people get that totally wrong. What you should be doing is thinking about what should I do to demonstrate being a great leader, right? So for example, if one of your employees, their mom gets sick, right? And it's like, she they got to be home for months to take care of her. Your first thing out of your mouth should not be like, how are we going to solve for so-and-so not being in the office. Like, what are we gonna do about the company and the customers? That's not the right thing to say. Your first thing that should come out of your mouth is how are we gonna help her as a person and make sure that she can be successful through a very tough time and make it so when she comes back to the workplace, like 
it's not going to be crazy for her. Like, so that's the stuff that like, I think a lot of people get wrong about leadership is you need to be not thinking about what you're going to tell people. You need to be thinking about what you're going to do when that all comes to it. And uh, anyway, that was just a rant. No, I love that. I'm going to tweet this later now. You inspired this, but I feel like when you ask qualities of a best boss, a lot of people would probably say they were a great listener. Like, I had a great boss. They were a great listener. I felt heard, but nobody's going to say they were a great talker. Like my favorite boss ever. They were so good at talking at me all the time. Like nobody's going to have that experience. That's not how we connect with people. We have to like take the time to like really listen and understand where people are coming from. And you know, it's, it's the things that, that we do that, that set the example. It's also the same thing there is if you want to be considered like a great conversationalist, you just ask good questions and then you let the other person talk about something they're very passionate about. And like, that is the greatest way for everybody to think you're like the best conversationalist in the world. And you don't have to say anything except be genuinely interested in what they're interested in and curious about it and express that in a way that comes across as genuinely the other person. And then you just let them talk. It's like, it's total genius. I love that. What are the things you look for to help you identify what somebody's passionate about? Like, are there signals that you've learned to identify? Yeah, I think there's two things to do if you want to do that. Number one, like you want to ask questions that are open-ended and there's a lot of good questions like, oh, what, you know, are you working on any, ex what exciting things are you working on these days? Or, hey, what what do you do for fun? Like, that's my favorite question because I, I want to avoid the opposite of that question, which is like, what do you do for work? Like, screw, yeah, screw that. This, yeah. we, we need to get past that. Yeah. But like, what do you do for fun is a great one. Or like, you know, what's new for you? What's new for you is another way for people to explain something they're very excited about. Sometimes they'll tell you something that, you know, they think you want to hear, but like, what are you passionate about? What do you do for fun? You, you inevitably get somebody that is going to be excited to talk about it. But the te the true test is like, what does their body language do when they start to talk about it, right? Like you hear me talk about some of this stuff. You can see my body language, I get like super excited and engaged. I'm like, oh, like, let me tell you about this college professor I had that I really enjoyed. Like my body language will never lie about like my level of excitement for something. And a normal person in a situation will do the same thing. You just got to watch it. See what does their face do? What does their eyes do? What does their voice tone do? Like they're telling you a ton. Just pay attention when they start talking about it. And if they don't have a level of excitement about it, then ask, well, okay, like what else do you do for fun? Well, <laughs> maybe, they'll, maybe they'll actually tell you the truth. Just got chipped back the layers a little bit until they can start opening up and you start seeing that smile come out. Yeah. I love it. And you crush it on Twitter. Like I, you're one of my favorite people to follow for sure. I think there's a, a great balance of you showcasing your personality and you've kind of learned different ways to do that, but also teaching great leadership lessons. And I'm curious your inspiration for like, why did you get started and why do you continue putting content out? Because I think it's a little different for everybody, but curious your why on, on that aspect. Look, I have spent the past 28 years trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up and what would have me tap dancing to work and lots of long walks and sitting in dark rooms and stuff. And the thing I've realized, like I'm put on this earth to create things that scale to help a lot of people. Mm. And those are businesses, content, machines, businesses that make content, like videos that can be watched over and over again. Those are the things that get me the most excited. And like, I love helping people. I love teaching. I love the process of like developing an idea, getting inside the audience head, thinking this is what they're going to like, writing that thing, perfecting it, doing the psychology to make it work the best, getting the right hook in the whole thing. All of that is just super fun to me because it feels so high leverage. Like I'm doing things at scale that are going to make the my community and the world around me a better place. And like, it gets reinforced a lot because I'll go to events and people will come up and they'll be like, you don't know me, but like you changed my life. I'm like, 
with my tweets. That's incredible. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. And, uh, and ultimately, like, that's super inspiring for me. Like, I just get, you know, at a point in life, like, frankly, I don't need to work. <laughs> like, I don't, if, I, if I wanted to just go be one of those people doing nothing, I could go do that. But it doesn't seem inspiring to me at all because of why I'm here on the planet. And um, social media is just a great way to do that. Like, I couldn't imagine, like, teaching to a, a classroom of 20 people. That sounds totally low leverage to me. But teaching to an audience of 192,000. Yeah. Like, that's inspiring. I feel like I'm making a huge impact on the world around me. And and that's why I'm on the planet. So getting to do what I love. Does it blow your mind sometimes to think about 192,000 people have hit that follow button? Like, close to 200,000 people. Or is it, for you, was it expectation? Like, it's just, you knew it was going to happen at some point because you, you were just consistent. My entrepreneurial way of going about stuff is totally experimentive. Like I just go in and start doing stuff and then eventually develop a vision later. Like I had no idea it was going to get, keep going. And here we are taking over the world one tweet at a time, Chili's memes and leadership advice. You know, I love it all. Where did the Chili's things start from? Was it just like a joke and you just kept running with it or? Yeah, I mean, it was a joke that other that worked. Um, I make a lot of jokes. Most of them don't work. Same. I relate to that so much. I relate to that so much. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just the way it is. So anyway, I'm trying to be, I think funny is a learned skill too. So I'm working on that. You know, it dates back to during COVID, my family and I decided to drive from San Antonio up to Bentonville. And frankly, I wanted to go mountain biking in Bentonville. So I'd like talk my whole family to go in there. So they hated it. I loved it. I went mountain biking every day. I was like, this is the best. <laughs> but on the way up, it was during COVID. No restaurants were open. So we needed to get some healthy food or as healthy as you can get in rural Arkansas. And the only thing that was open was chilies. And my family and I went and got chilies to go. You couldn't eat in the restaurant during COVID. Mm. And they made the food for us. We grabbed it out the front and took the takeout. And we just sat in a parking lot and the weather was beautiful. We watched the sunset. You know, my kids, you know, engaged with us and it really made me realize that we spend a lot of time talking about like who's on the runway in New York City or like, are you going to get, you know, go to this one type of music show that's unique or this Michelin star restaurant in LA and and all this stuff that, you know, supposedly very special. But for me, the idea of Chili's and like that moment was like, there's beauty happening everywhere, including Flyover America where I live. And so every time I actually make the Chili's joke, that's the point I'm actually kind of making, which is like, I think there's beauty everywhere, you know, whether it's a, the New York ballet or whether it's, you know, somebody doing something magical in San Francisco, or it's just like an affordable place that a family can go get a predictable meal have a margarita or two and some fajitas and spend quality time with their family and then go home and like live a great life, right? And I think to me, there's beauty in all of those things. And I think we don't spend enough time talking about how much beauty there is in the rest of the world that's, you know, not commonly called that way, so. That was the most incredible Chili's commercial that has ever been written. <laughs> Holy smokes. Yeah. Those guys don't pay me anything. They, I'm available, They guys. need to. Uh, they need to be sponsored. You should never have to pay for another Chili's meal for the rest of your life after all the exposure you've given them. I am confident there are many people that have gone to Chili's at first just for the irony of like, oh, yeah, this is the place that Gurdley jokes about all the time on Twitter, but then enjoying some fajitas. So they need to sponsor this podcast, too, while they're at it. What are we doing? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Awesome. But I appreciate you so much taking the time. I know your your time is extremely valuable and to have you as a guest on the Leaders Lens podcast, it means a ton. Where should people be going to to check you out and, and to to stay in contact? Yeah, definitely go to my website, girdly.com. Links to everything you can engage with me on are there. So I'm I'm a YouTuber now. 
besides a Twitterer. And uh, we have a newsletter also. Encourage you to sign up for that. We have 25,000 people Let's that go. get a newsletter from me every week. I talk about leadership, management, investing, small business topics, and then throw in some life stuff here and there. And I'm really having a ton of fun doing that. So go to gridley.com, click on any of the things and subscribe. There's a bunch of free stuff I put out there. I love it, man. We appreciate you so much. I cannot encourage you enough to, to check him out on all the platforms. He's doing an incredible job. Thank you for listening to the show. Don't miss another episode of Leaders Lens and the inside scoop on becoming a great leader. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love Leaders Lens, please tell a friend.